Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. The big political news, of course, is that tonight President Biden will deliver his State of the Union address, and it will be the first time that he gives the address uh, with a divided Congress. He's got a Republican House uh, that is largely hostile to him. And one of the things that's going to be fascinating to watch is how he navigates dealing with them, how they respond to much of what he has to say tonight. We're going to talk a bit about the State of the Union, especially as it relates to uh, Georgia, Georgia members of Congress. So let me get right to introducing the panel and we'll get started. Tamar Hallerman is my partner from the AJC on the Tuesday show. She's a senior reporter at the AJC. And and, and tomorrow we should point out, excuse me, that as a former Washington correspondent for the AJC, you spent some time at State of the Union addresses. And they, in the past, and I used to go up there for them too, and at least they used to have some great solemnity and pageantry to them. Uh, All of the reporters waiting um, in the rotunda as uh, uh, the parade of dignitaries, Supreme Court justices, members of the military, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all marched through on their way to the House. It was quite an evening. It's a very classic Washington event. Pageantry is the perfect word. And the Capitol is buzzing in a way that maybe orientation, maybe the first day of a new Congress can match that. Uh, But there's a real energy on State of the Union Day. Members go to the House chamber early to stake out good seats in that central aisle so they can be on C-SPAN shaking the president's hand. Um, Folks are wearing different colors to symbolize various things. They're sitting with friends or making a show of who they're sitting next to. It's a really fun day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so I'm glad you're here to talk about uh, tonight's State of the Union uh, with us. Um, Raul Bali, WABE politics reporter, is with us, co-host of uh, pod- what's your podcast uh, these days called? Because it changed over from the election year podcast, Raul. It did. We're now uh, the Gold Dome Scramble now that uh, we're in the legislative session. Gold Dome Scramble. It sounds like a menu item at Waffle House. <laughs> I was going, going it come out? for the silver skillet. Uh, yeah. We drop when it Friday it mornings. Um, we drop it Friday, uh, Friday afternoons because uh, we're not going to have any Fridays in session this uh, year. So yeah. uh, that's, that, yeah. that's why we, we tape it first thing Friday morning and drop it Friday afternoon. Well, thank you very much. We're always glad to have you be part of our show. And we are joined today, I'm so happy to say, by two people who I think it's safe to say have been friends for a very, very long time. And both of them, uh, long-time elected officials and uh, leaders in uh, Marietta, former state attorney general uh, Sam Olins, and... Um, Buddy Darden, former member of Congress. Sam, let me start with you. Welcome to Political Rewind today. It's good to have you here. My pleasure, Bill. Pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be with Buddy. Um, And I wanted to mention you uh, uh, at last, Buddy, because you served in Congress, 7th District, up there, Cobb County, all the way up in those days to the Tennessee border, uh, virtually. Um, from 1983 to 1995, which by my calculation means that you would have attended State of the Union speeches by Presidents Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and President Clinton. Have I got that right? That's right, Bill. In fact, I counted up last night anticipating that question because I have attended 17 State of the Union addresses uh, under, of course, President Reagan, who always put on a great, great performance. 
as well as uh, President Bush the first and President Clinton. I came back to some of his even after I left Congress, but the most meaningful and the most memorable one was in 1963 when as a young Senate aide, I slipped in the House and observed the last State of the Union address of President John F. Kennedy. Oh my gosh, that must have been a remarkable memory to have. That must be really something, buddy. It was. It's something I remember to this very day. Buddy, one quick question, uh, and then we'll get into the substance of what we uh, think maybe President Biden will talk about tonight. Um, but, you know, I think it's fair to say the State of the Union addresses have already always had some display of partisanship. A Republican president uh, is going to get a lot more applause, standing ovations from one side of the chamber. The Democrats are going to sit down, uh, stay seated, uh, vice versa, when a Democrat's in power. But, but do you believe as you go back over the years and watch the State of Union addresses, you recall, and then watch how they're dealt with today, that the partisanship has grown even more clear, more apparent, that the hostility from the party that's uh, not in power in the White House is even uh, more, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, fiercely hostile? <laughs> I don't, Bill, I don't think there's any question about it. In fact, at two different ones in the last few years, we had a member of Congress shout out something to the effect that you lie and uh, at the uh, president who was speaking. And we even had a Supreme Court justice one time to uh, take issue with what President Obama was saying. So, yes, it has become more confrontational, but still, it's a great event. And I think it's something that I always look forward to attending. And in the end, I always felt that I was glad I went because I learned something. All right. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, uh, the Georgians who will be up there for this event, what we expect President Biden to have to say tomorrow. Uh, let me start with this. Um, it's interesting that The Washington Post has just released uh, uh, yesterday a brand new poll that shows that on the eve of the President's State of the Union address, only 62% of Americans believe he's done, well, no, 62% of Americans believe he's done, quote, not very much or little to nothing in office. And, and so that sets a real challenge for President Biden, uh, who we expect to announce he's running for re-election quite soon, uh, to establish his uh, a record tonight. He has a lot of goals for tonight. You're exactly right, Bill. A majority of Americans feel that he's not doing a good job. This is in Georgia as well, where we've seen he's just been underwater for pretty much the entire time he's been in office. So he needs to go in and showcase his accomplishments from the last two years, including this infrastructure bill, health and climate legislation, chip uh, manufacturing legislation. He needs to rev up Democrats. He's expected to be running again in 2024. Um, so he needs to kind of build up enthusiasm internally. He also needs to look sharp and kind of show his, um, you know, his uh, mental fortitude in this address. Uh, something that you see a lot, especially on Fox News and, and critics of him, is they say he's he's getting old. He's not sharp anymore. He makes a lot of gaffes. He is tightly scripted. And so he's going to need to show that he's he's with it and he's sharp and he knows what's going on and he's in command and there is a real concern you know he's he's already in his early 80s by the time he'd wrap up a second term i believe he'd be 86 the oldest president in the united states history so he has stuff to prove there and then he also has of course over the weekend all this drama with this chinese spying balloon floating over the u.s republicans were hounding him for saying that he wasn't being strong enough that he took way too long to shoot the thing down that he this proves that he is a weak president. So I expect him to want to address that as well. Raul, uh, let me read from the New York Times report on uh, the speech, uh, what they anticipate, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the Georgians and how they're dealing with it. President Biden plans to challenge the new House Republican majority on Tuesday night to raise taxes on the wealthy, extend more social aid to the needy, and rule out cuts to Social Security and Medicare as he opens an era of divided government. 
In his first State of the Union address since his fellow Democrats lost control of the House, aides said Mr. Biden would call on lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to rally around his economic agenda, even as the newly empowered opposition gears up to try to force him to change direction. Raul, weigh in. So you heard part of what we're watching for tonight, the style, you know, how he looks up there. But just as important is going to be the substance, you know, whether it's, you know, addressing insulin, something that you heard Senator Warnock, uh, Raphael Warnock talk about a lot on the campaign trail, something you worked on Congress because, you know, you were they were able to get a $35 cap, monthly cap on insulin, but only for Medicare. The question is, what about private insurance? Then you have other issues, whether it's abortion or policing. So just as important as hearing, you know, watching the style and, and how he looks up there is also there are going to be people wanting to hear the substance and the issues he talks about tonight. Sam? You know, the political wannabes will pay attention to every word. There will clearly be opportunities for obnoxious uh, actions to be taken by uh, some extremists on both sides of the aisle. Um, as you stated, Bill, earlier on, I think the 62% number is just outright uh, damaging. And I'm not quite sure that there's anything the president's going to do to significantly change that. Buddy, jump in. Well, Bill, you've got to remember that the president is not only speaking to the audience assembled and everyone pretty knows, pretty much knows where they are, but he's speaking beyond them. Uh, president Reagan started uh, making this a prime time event and it's continued since that time. But he's reaching beyond the audience there in the House chamber to the American people. And that's the most important message that can be given, because if he reaches through to the American people, then the Congress will fall in line. So what he's got to do is come across as someone in charge who knows what he's doing and present himself in such a way that the American people have confidence in him. So this is important not just for the substance of what's being given, but how this is perceived among the nationwide audience. And on that note, buddy, I mean, in terms of what Joe Biden wants the country to get from this, he wants to once again hammer this point that he's willing to be bipartisan and cut deals with Republicans during this era of divided government, uh, that he's the adult in the room after <laughs> Donald Trump, that worked for him in 2020, but two years have passed. I mean, polling shows once again that he's not popular with voters. And of course, there's a newly emboldened House majority that, you know, with, with a brand new speaker who's going to be sitting behind him, Kevin McCarthy, who's intent on not giving him any sort of victory, especially when it comes to the debt ceiling and budget negotiations. So it's a much different climate for him. He's not going to have um, as warm of a reception as he's gotten the last two years. And as Sam mentioned, I think it's a tall order, especially given just how rotten his approval ratings are. Um, so typically, uh, each member of Congress gets uh, one ticket to bring a guest into the chamber for the speech. And often the guest that's invited is symbolic of something that that particular member wants to highlight. Let me give you, Raul, <clears throat> excuse me, as a starting point, examples of who's coming to uh, 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 the speech tonight for Georgians. John Ossoff is bringing Marianne Brown. She's a pecan grower. And of course, he wants to highlight the fact that he finally worked a deal with India, a long sought after deal that would make it much easier for Georgia farmers to sell their uh, pecans in India. Raphael Warnock, and you already mentioned this, uh, Raul, is, uh, has invited Lucy Mason. She is an Atlanta woman who has diabetes, and uh, thanks to Raphael Warnock's pushing it hard, he was able to uh, uh, get into law, lower prices through Medicare for uh, insulin, $35 insulin. Nakima Williams has invited Monica Simpson, who's the executive director of Sister Song, 
the organization that has been in the forefront of the lawsuits challenging Georgia's six-week abortion uh, 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 ban. So, um, so we see the kind of issues that our members are going to want to highlight tonight, Raul. Yes, and and here's here's kind of the important thing about the guest, and and even before the era of social media, you know, these would be the people we would interview. You know, so and so was the guest, and, and we would talk about the issue, especially. Uh, on a local level, you mentioned and one of the guests is from from Leesburg. You know, when I was in Augusta Media or Milledgeville Media, these were the people we would do interviews with. And, and now in social media, you know, after the speech and whatever happens with the speech, whether substance uh, or style with with President Biden, you're going to see people talking about, hey, so and so was a guest, whether it's a controversial guest or somebody does something controversially. These guests are as much about media coverage that comes after the State of the Union and what happens on social media is anything else. All right. Um, it's going to be fascinating to watch how uh, this unfolds uh, tonight. I'll add a couple of quick notes uh, to this. The AJC, uh, I assume Tia Mitchell got this quote, uh, Sam Andrew Clyde, one of the most conservative members of the House, uh, here's his quote, I can set the bar as low as it I can, and I don't think the president is going to meet it. Uh, so, Sam, that's probably not uh, untypical of what we're going to see in terms of many Republicans' reactions to what anything that the president says tonight. It's sort of predetermined, yes? So my, my disagreement with you, Bill, is the word conservatives. Um, I, I frankly think that's a word that's overused. When you're talking about um, Congressman Clyde, Congressman Boebert, um, Congressman Roy, I'm not sure calling them conservative is fair to real conservatives at that point. I think we need to distinguish between those individuals who will be vitriolic at every opportunity as compared to those individuals that are truly conservative. I think that's a really excellent point, Sam, uh, because I, and one of the reasons that I think you would make that uh, statement is that you have, I think, in your career, uh, starting at, in at Cobb County Commission and certainly as Attorney General, and in your whole uh, career as a, as a Republican, would consider yourself to be, in many ways, a conservative, yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, I think when I talk to most elected Republicans, they fully agree with my position, but they are um, not wanting to face that electoral uh, attack. All right. Well, we will certainly be uh, reporting on the uh, State of the Union tomorrow. We've got a great panel assembling uh, tomorrow to uh, talk about what the president uh, had to say. And by the way, uh, certainly you'll be able to listen to this speech tonight. It starts at nine o'clock Eastern time on uh, GPB. Uh, and you'll also be able to uh, see it at gpb.org. And I assume we'll have it on PB, our PBS uh, uh, stations across the state uh, as well. So uh, let's move forward and talk about a few other issues uh, in the news right now. Um, let me, Tamar, let's, let's go to this interesting uh, story about the fact that in their final weeks in office, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and former state Senator Butch Miller went on a European trip. I think there were 14 people all told in the party, according to Tyler Estep, who was the, um, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't Tyler, one of your colleagues reported on this story. Um, and and the whole trip was paid for by the state. They went to Germany, did a lot of uh, meetings there. Um, they went elsewhere. But the fact of the matter is that they were virtually out of office. And in fact, their replacements had already been elected. And now um, the Senate leadership, current Senate leadership, wants to have this whole thing investigated. Um, 
And of course, <laughs> there is no love lost between the current Lieutenant Governor, Burt Jones, and Jeff Duncan. So in one respect, it's not surprising that Burt Jones would be jumping on this. But it is something worth considering, yes? Yeah, this is a great story from my colleagues, James Salzer and Maya Prabhu. Um, and they reported that that 14 people back in November traveled to, to Germany and England, um, all on the state dime. And what makes this hard to track is because the legislature exempts itself from open records laws, we aren't able to see how much money this trip cost taxpayers, what exactly they were doing. We have to kind of take the word of some of the other folks who were on the trip who, who chose to speak with us about it. And uh, Neil Herring, who's a longtime uh, lobbyist at the Capitol, had my favorite quote in the story, who said, this is why the, the word junket was uh, was developed. This is, quote, this is Joe Citizen with the state credit card and no limit. Um, so certainly, I mean, it, it smells a little bit. We don't really know. We don't have a great idea of what happened. Um, and I guess we'll, we'll wait to see what this investigation uncovers. Yeah. One of the things about this story, buddy, that is particularly important is something tomorrow already touched on. Efforts to find out how much money was spent on this trip um, are for naught because the legislature has exempted itself from open records. And that this is another example of why that creates real problems with transparency, buddy. Absolutely. And the legislature should not exempt itself. In fact, it ought to be a matter of public record. Now, Congress gets a lot of criticism, but whenever Congress travels, that's a matter of public record. And the amount of money spent is a matter of public record. Now, they were smart enough, even though I think this is just a good old fashioned junket. I still think they were smart enough to bring some Democrats along so they could say it was a bipartisan event. But here's something that you may not know is in the congressional level, if you uh, are not seeking re-election or if you are defeated in a general election and cannot go into the next term, you cannot travel at the expense of the United States government. And in 1994, when I lost election, I was scheduled to go on an armed services trip to Greece and with my wife and some other, other folks. And I was excluded from the trip because I would not be able to serve in the, in the next term. So the Congress has already addressed this problem years ago. And if, if you're not going to be back uh, within a certain time uh, to take, take office, uh, you can't travel on the people's, at the people's expense. You're right. I was completely unaware of that. And I'll bet mo most of us weren't aware of that. Raul? So I think the key thing, so we did hear from, as you mentioned, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jones, along with the new president pro tem, John Kennedy, and, and what they're gonna specifically investigate is the approval process, the budgeting that around this, because the, these were state Senate funds is my understanding, but you're right that there's, you know, it, it's not as transparent. I'm not going to be surprised in the end if we're going to start, you know, that in some way that these numbers are going to be made public. And then the questions asked about, you know, how this trip came about um, and then, you know, did it bring business uh, or jobs to the state of Georgia? Those are the things I'm going to be watching for, because now you've had the lieutenant governor and the Senate president pro tem say this needs to be looked into. Sam Olins, um, it strikes me that your entire career, transparency it, in public life, transparency has been extraordinarily important to you. So I'm wondering how you look at the notion that uh, in this case specifically and more broadly, uh, the legislature has exempted itself from transparency in open records. Well, I think it's unfortunate that the trip occurred. Clearly, uh, it was a bad decision. Uh, no question about it. Uh, when we rewrote the Sunshine Laws while I was Attorney General, it was made clear to me that no such change would occur to the section that relates to legislators. Um, the governor's office has historically been more open to release of information irrespective of language in the state sunshine laws 
um, of interest is uh, to you potentially is our sister state, Georgia, two legislators is a quorum for purposes of the sunshine laws. So Florida is the exact opposite. So uh, I, I'm glad you reminded me that as attorney general, that was one of your one of the most important uh, issues that you uh, worked on, which was the sunshine laws. And what impact has that had um, since those went into effect? Well, I think it would be fair to say that uh, it is much cheaper to obtain records now and much easier to obtain records now. You know, before that change, the law candidly didn't speak about emails. Uh, yeah. You know, certainly didn't think about, you know, numerous technological advances. Uh, but I think the law has uh, been determined to have been a significant improvement for all parties involved. And uh, clearly, we worked a lot with the press. We worked a lot with local government. We wanted to hear from everyone. Uh, Tamar, do you imagine that Raul may be right that eventually this is good? This has grown to be the kind of story that the, the public is going to demand knowing the kind of costs this were incurred by this group. Sure, but I wonder if it's going to lead to broader changes for the legislature. And I'm so hesitant. Sam is shaking his head right now. And, and I feel yeah. the same way. Congress has also exempted itself from open records laws and lawmakers in general take to tend to take a very expansive view when it comes to legislative privilege and their ability to what they say is protecting delicate legislative negotiations. I mean, there's bills in the legislature right now that would make it harder, for example, to subpoena lawmakers for them to come testify in a criminal investigation. So I feel personally that the headwinds are moving in the other direction, but maybe when it comes to things specifically like travel and trips, perhaps there is enough public outrage to, to lead to some changes. All right, um, let's do this. Uh, it's time for us to get a break out of the way. I want to do that now. We've got more I want to talk about with our panel. We'll do that in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Our panelists today, uh, Buddy Darden, former Georgia U.S. Congressman, Sam Olins, former State Attorney General, Raul Bali, WABE politics reporter, and senior reporter for the AJC, Tamara Kellerman. Um, let's talk for a few minutes about HB 30, Raul Bali. Um, it's the bill that was introduced by a bipartisan group, uh, Esther Panich um, from Sandy Springs, being one of the people who sponsored it. Um, but uh, it's the bill that would define what anti-Semitism is in Georgia law and therefore uh, open the door for anti-Semitic incidents to be, in fact, conclude, uh, included in hate crimes. Uh, prosecution. And and Raul, of course, we've talked about this on the show for a couple of days, but it becomes even more significant now because over the weekend, we had this extraordinarily uh, evil incident in which anti-Semitic flyers were dropped at the front doors of dozens of homes of uh, most, I assume, Jewish families in, in Sandy Springs, in Dunwoody. Um, and, and it reminded us, Raul, that anti-Semitism still exists. It's alive and well in Georgia. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to note that you've also seen these kind of incidents down in Columbus. You've had some in Paulding County. It, it, it's, you've got the attention on these. And, and you mentioned uh, Esther Panish. She was one of the people who did get uh, some of those flyers that were on her driveway. Um, in terms of House Bill 30, uh, it, 
they had its first hearing on on the 31st and it was a pretty long hearing and it's it's when it says when it's you're defining anti-semitism it actually is referring to a definition by the Inter international holocaust remembrance alliance and that's actually one of the hang-ups that came up during the hearing is well this bill doesn't define anti-semitism it goes back to another organization so you heard some lawmakers race uh, talk about that. You had other lawmakers talk about, and I should point out that this hearing was held before the incidents of this weekend. You also heard uh, lawmakers and also witnesses raise issues about how this will be implemented, what actually happens, whether it's on college campuses, with state government, or prosecutions. Every single person in the room um, was saying, look, we've, you've got to stop anti-Semitism, but how do you do this? Do you do it with this legislation? Do you do it with this definition? What happens to free speech? What happens on college campuses? And you were hearing that from Republicans and Democrats on how to implement this. Now, this bill was supposed to get another hearing today, but that committee got canceled. Um, I have not been told that there's anything to read beyond. It was just a cancellation of a committee hearing, which we're getting a lot of right now because committees are running into each other. But it, the, the real question is, how do you implement this? You had similar legislation in the last session that didn't get through. Those are the questions that you're hearing from lawmakers. I believe that HB 30 was uh, supposed to be the first item on the uh, Judiciary Committee's agenda had they met this morning. And I'm sure reporters will be Correct. looking to see if there's any connection whatsoever. And, and we have no reason to think that there is. Sam Olin's Esther Panich is right now the only Jewish member of the Georgia legislature. Um, but again, she's had bipartisan support on this bill, including from the new majority leader in, in the House, Chuck F. Stration, who, of course, is the Republican who sponsored and worked so hard to pass hate crimes uh, legislation in the first place uh, a couple of sessions back, right? Right. Uh, Chuck's a great guy. And I, I believe there were a couple minor changes following the initial hearing that were going to be part of the bill um, amendment for this afternoon. Um, you know, I, I think what happened this weekend, while of course, um, very unfortunate and very inappropriate, um, it happens every day. Um, the, the fact that some Dunwoody and Sandy Springs driveways got it, um, and that there are clearly numerous Jews that live in those neighborhoods, made for a lot of news, but it happens every day, as, as Raul said. I mean, it happened earlier this year in, in Northwest Cop. Uh, it, it, and, and I think while it is appropriate to highlight the problem, education's the only thing that's really going to make a difference here. It is totally inappropriate to be um, supporting any type of hate speech, whether it's anti-Semitic, anti-Asian, anti-Hispanic, anti-African-American. Um, but unfortunately, in our current political world, the amount of vitriol uh, attacking um, minorities is growing by the day. I think last year's ADL report showed a greater number of incidents than ever before. Uh, I'm reminded, Bill, about five years ago, people used to say, oh, my God, look at the anti-Semitic incidents in France. It's a good thing we live in America. That won't happen here. But guess what? It is. And it's happening in greater numbers every year. Uh, so as a Jewish American, I need to be mindful that to be an African American, an Hispanic American, Asian American, an Islamic American, no minority group uh, can go a day without being concerned about such bigotry. Um, Sam, it really would be wrong of us not to uh, mention, and we talked about this on our show in which we could, we devoted a whole hour to talking about the rise of anti-Semitism, the fact that you yourself know what it means to be um, running for statewide office as a Jew and the kind of reaction you yourself finally uh, talked about very openly after leaving office. Um, you went through some difficult time. You know, it's 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 it's, it's look, it happened. Uh, it's going to happen. I presume Senator Ossoff has it happened to him too. Uh, 
but I think we similarly need to be mindful that there are other elected officials that face the same um, stupidity on a daily basis. Tamar? Yeah, it's um, it's so frustrating to to see that stuff like this is still happening. You know, I grew up in the '90s and 2000s in a time where I felt like, as a young Jew, that hey, things are looking really great for us in America. This isn't a problem on the scale that my grandparents faced in Poland. And so it's really disheartening to see how we're still being singled out. And it's unfortunate to hear the experience that Sam had um, back in the day. And, and I'm, I'm sad that it's still in the headlines now. Buddy, we do have to say that as after these uh, flyers were dropped over the weekend, State and local leaders reacted very, very quickly. Um, police in uh, in Dunwoody and Sandy Springs launched investigations right away. Governor Kemp uh, spoke out condemning this uh, and offered state resources to help. And and a great many people across the aisle spoke out and said this is unacceptable. So I suppose that's the uh, bright side of this story. Uh, yes, Bill, that is a silver lining, and I couldn't agree more with what Sam Owens has said, but I want to point out that in spite of being Jewish, uh, he, of course, was a very successful elected politician in not only Cobb County, but the state of Georgia, and the majority of the people, thank goodness, uh, saw fit to ignore this type of, this type of, of discrimination. And I want to say this, that such incidents are totally inexcusable and they should be subject to zero tolerance. But as Sam said, the ones that happened in Dunwoody and Sandy Springs recently, of course, got a lot of attention. But there's something that happens every day in our school systems and uh, in our other groups that uh, meet. So let me emphasize it ought to be a zero zero tolerance uh, here, and it's incumbent, and I appreciate Governor Kemp and all the leaders uh, speaking up and taking a stand here. Uh, Raul, before we get to our final break of the show, I do want to emphasize an important point that Sam Olin's made, and I direct this at you um, as uh, someone of uh, Asian uh, heritage. Uh, this is not, yes, anti-Semitism needs to be addressed, and it is one of the uh, bigot, you know, one of the signs of bigotry that maybe doesn't get as much attention as anti-black bigotry. Um, but he makes the point, we're talking about all people who are essentially minorities needing to be protected against uh, hatred. I mean, and that's the reality, you know, for all of us who are in different minority groups, you know, um, you know, that it was a challenge um, you know, for those in the audience who don't know, I'm a, I'm a six foot tall Indian guy with 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 brown skin. And um, I was working at WSB when 9-11 happened. And yeah, you got I mean, people would ask inappropriate questions or make inappropriate comments in those times. And it, it's, you know, when I'm out on the campaign trail, you know, you'll hear things. It, it, it's there. It's it's. When Sam says it happens every day, no, it doesn't happen to me every day, but it happens from time to time. And, um, you know, when you get into these situations, the good thing about, you know, those of us who are minority journalists is each of us bring that point of view and that understanding of, of what other groups are facing because some of us have faced those things. All right. I just wanted to give you a chance to weigh on, on, in on that. I've got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Tamar, the uh, controversy over the planned Atlanta Police Training Center uh, is not going away, uh, even as DeKalb County has now issued permits. It begins the process of building that facility by clearing the land. And uh, yesterday, uh, the parents of Manuel Turan, uh, who was known as uh, Tortuguita, um, who was shot to death in what was apparently an exchange of gunfire with state troopers. One state trooper was shot 
uh, and severely wounded. Um, and, and they said they want to know more. They don't be, feel they have enough information about what happened. Uh, an autopsy uh, uh, has now revealed that uh, Tehran was shot 13 times, um, again, after allegedly first firing at the state troopers who were trying to clear the, uh, the land, uh, the, 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 the forest of these uh, activists. But, but here's, the, here's the question about all this. Th this center seems clearly to be going ahead. And I think Mayor Dickens was in an editorial board meeting at the AJC uh, just recently. And I think he made a point that strikes me as being really crucial. And that is communication about what this center is and working with the community to make it clear has really been lacking. That's not going to make the activists uh, any less angry. But it's certainly true that we know very little in, in, a, in, a, in a detailed way about this center. Yes? Yeah, agreed. And I mean, we just saw pictures yesterday and it really, you know, on, on first glance, it looks like it could be in Ukraine or something. All these SWAT teams heavily armed coming to the site of the um, law enforcement training center to start clearing it out. I believe this was yesterday and bulldozers and mud and ATVs and people in helmets and bulletproof vests. Um, I mean, already this comes at a time when there's such lack of trust in law enforcement, obviously in the backdrop of what happened in Memphis with Tyree Nichols. And so I think all of this compounds to make it pretty impossible for the sides to, to trust each other in all of this. Of course, as you mentioned, we now have the mayor saying he regrets the communication so far. And you have the family of, of one of the killed activists saying they don't know what's going on. And, and at this point, it seems like, you know, this is happening. And, and I wonder if the two sides will ever be able to come together and at least come to a common understanding here. Well, uh, Buddy, just in terms of the shooting death uh, specifically, we know uh, one of the things that's added to the anger is that the state trooper was not wearing a body cam, so there's no video of that. But apparently there are other videos that are being withheld right now during <clears throat> the investigation, excuse me, and that unfortunately raises even more questions about what's being quote-unquote hidden here, Buddy. Well, Bill, as you probably remember, I was district attorney in Cobb County and assistant DA for a total of nine years and confronted some situations like this from, from time to time. And it's a very difficult situation that the GBI and the government and the city of Atlanta finds find itself in. My heart certainly goes out to those poor parents. I read about them and I read about their son and and while I have great, great sympathy toward him, at the same time, um, the evidence at this point tends to show that uh, he had uh, had a gun and, and he fired first. So I'm not sure. And and we've got to remember, of course, that the trooper and, and his injuries as well. Right now, we don't know uh, what happened uh, to a great extent. But I think uh, if I were in the situation of the head of the GBI, I noticed that the parents have asked for a meeting. Even though he can't tell them anything definitively at this point, uh, I think he probably ought to meet with them and ex extend the fact that he's sorry for their loss, even if the son, in fact, did provoke it. The problem to me is, is this. Uh, these investigations, according to most reports, take 60 to 90 days. That's a very, very long time for this thing to sit there. So there needs to be maybe some temporary meeting to let the uh, people know that, uh, yes, this is a regrettable situation. We're going to investigate it and take the proper action uh, here. But at the same time, we can't tell you right now, right now what, what's happened. And also uh, looking at this situation, I think perhaps uh, the uh, other persons, the other trespassers, and that's what I would call them, the other trespassers uh, being charged with domestic uh, terrorism, I think is a bit a bit harsh. 
And um, I think that everybody needs to uh, back off here and and come together and and discuss this situation because this is a really sad, regrettable chapter, both from the, from the state standpoint and from the uh, standpoint of the of the individuals. And and I think we're going to have to sit down and reach a common understanding and dialogue here. So, Raul, the larger question about the communication <clears throat> over what this site really is all about uh, is, is still in play, I believe. In reading the reporting of the AJC's meeting with the mayor, he laid it out in a way that I'd never heard it laid out quite as well before. Um, and, and, and it strikes me that we, we you know, it, it, the activists who are protesting this think it's the military, it's going to be about the militarization of the police. I've heard very little from the other side of it about how, in fact, one of the things you do in training is de-escalation, how you deal with suspects in a way that you calm down uh, the situation and that sort of thing. And Raul, part of this, I think, has to do with an organization we've heard that isn't really being talked about the way it needs to be, the Atlanta Police Foundation, which essentially is funding about two-thirds of this thing and has operated for a very long time um, without facing much controversy at all, Raul. <clears throat> you know, and, and the whole conversation about messaging, um, you know, you, the people who were supporting the training center were just not making the link of, look, you know, you have issues with engagement involving police officers and people with the public, well, you need a training center to go do that. You know, when you saw the debates on these things, you had one group over here saying, do it, you know, do build the training center and the whole group here, don't build the training center. And, and there was no conversation in the middle. Um, and you're right, there's, there has not been a lot of conversation about the Atlanta Police Foundation. The other thing is, and I wanna bring this back to the legislature, a conversation that's being had at the legislature, specifically by minority leader James Beverly, is the idea of state law enforcement wearing body cameras. You know, because, mm -hmm. you know, you're seeing the, you see, you know, uh, for example, this past weekend, you had state law enforcement, including state troopers involved in, you know, doing local law enforcement type work, you know, doing chases, uh, drug interdictions. You're having state law enforcement officers doing more of that kind. You have officers from DNR also involved. Obviously, uh, you have other agencies involved. So, you know, whether they need to wear body cameras or not is something that you're going to see at the state capitol. And along with all the players who are involved um, in building of this training center, probably getting more focus, whether it's the people who are there to defend the forest, people there to stop um, the building of the training center, or as you mentioned, the Atlanta Police Foundation. Sam, your thoughts? Well, I agree with a lot of what has been said. I, I frankly don't understand why someone trying to defend the forest has a gun on the property. And I don't understand why the gun was used in the first place. Um, and, uh, you know, clearly a full investigation needs to be had. Uh, the sooner it can occur, the better for all parties concerned. Uh, I, I also think we need to be mindful that the world's changed in the last couple of years. And it may be that several years ago, one did not think that state patrol needed body cameras, but one may think now with the changes in the last couple of years, it would be very appropriate for them to have those body cameras. I think that's a probably a timing issue where uh, the state knows that a change is needed. Um, the, the quote that recently bothered me the most was a comment that uh, we need more police accountability rather than more training. Those are not mutually exclusive. You, you mm. have to have more training. You have to have more accountability. They go together, and it needs to be done in a constructive manner. All right, Sam Olins, thank you for that comment. All right, Tamar, we are not going to let you 
get out of here today because we're down to almost being out of time. Nobody's been following the uh, special grand jury work more closely as a journalist than you have. Um, what exactly is going on? Judge McBurney, at some point fairly soon, has got to say something, doesn't he? Yeah, we're waiting for two sets of actions that we think will come soon. We're waiting for McBurney to to weigh in on whether this this final report from the grand jury should be released and when it should be released and how much of it. We're also waiting to hear from the DA's office if it plans to indict anyone as a result of this investigation. They're separate but related decisions. And so I've been sitting here refreshing the docket Waiting to see. You're absolutely right. We're <laughs> expecting something from Judge McBurney. We don't know when it's coming. I'm surprised we haven't seen anything yet. Maybe he's giving the DA a little bit of time to decide what she wants to do. Um, you uh, Before the show went on the air, we all had a chance to just sort of chat. And uh, I don't remember which one of what you would, was who said. And, um, uh, we know that you you reported to us, Fonnie Willis had said that her decision on on indictments was imminent before the McBurney hearing. And someone who was talking said, what exactly is the definition of imminent? It's already been, what, m- m- 10 days since the hearing? Sure. And it's led to a lot of time of me sitting at the court website, hitting refresh on that docket. All right. Well, we look forward to the decision. We're completely out of time, buddy. Darden, Raul, Bali, Sam Olin, Stamar Hallerman, thank you for today. I'm Bill Nygut. See you all tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.